0: So we're going to go over the book of Revelation this morning, and I'm not going to go point by point through the studies that John did over the last, actually, couple of years when he had it all together. I would encourage you, if you have not done it already, to go back to the beginning and listen to the, the ones that you've missed, because it was a really rich and very uh, helpful study. But I am going to focus on a couple of points Revelation is a book that is easily misunderstood. There are some things that have already happened. There are some things that are happening now, and there are some things that are going to happen in the future. I think the perspective is interesting, too, because the book is looked at from very different perspectives, a heavenly perspective, an earthly perspective. And I was thinking about a movie I I saw a while back where the movie was done from different camera angles, and each scene was unique in itself, and it took until the very end of the movie to put together all the scenes and to, and to see the big picture. I think Revelation is a little bit like that. You have all these different vantage points that uh, come together, but sometimes it helps to kind of back away and take a, a, a kind of almost like a, a higher view of it, a, uh, a flyover, if you will. So I'm going to do that this morning. I'm going to focus on a couple of main points. And if you're interested in a breakdown, I know John handed out a little flyer that talked about the book of Revelation and and broke it down. And that was very, very helpful early on. So the two main themes I'm going to talk about is, I think the book was written to strengthen the first century church as they were going against the uh, gathering storm of, of persecution. There was an intensity of tribulation as Christians were asked to deny their faith. And serve other gods. And secondly, I believe it was written to instruct the church that the course of redemptive history was taking a major turn. So to speak, there's a new sheriff in town. Things are going to be different from here on out. It's not going to be business as usual. The kingdom of Christ has come upon us. The old covenant has passed away. It became obsolete when Christ inaugurated the new covenant. And the new covenant took effect when he sacrificed himself for the sins of of the people once and for all. So those are the two main things I'm going to look at this morning. And also to better understand the revelation, we need to immerse ourselves as much as possible into the scene that was happening in that that first century so that we could understand what the uh, writers were trying to convey to the readers and how they were to encourage them. Uh, Following Christ was a decision that was followed by many trials and tribulation. It wasn't easy. Uh, The early Christians were also trying to understand how they were to act as followers of Christ. They needed to know the difference between Judaism and Christianity. Most of them came out of Judaism. They had questions about the things that were going on around them. Some of their friends were dying for the faith, and they didn't understand exactly Uh, why or where they were ending up. Uh, They had questions about heaven, about hell, about the kingdom. Is the kingdom here? Is the kingdom to come? Is Christ going to come back soon and reign here on earth as it exists presently? Or is this kingdom spiritual? They had a lot of questions. Um, As you can imagine, there was some confusion theologically and, and practically. So let's start with Revelation 1, verses 1 to 4. to show his servants, the followers of Christ, the things that are going to soon take place. Uh, the letter of Revelation was meant to be understood. It wasn't abstract. It was easily understood by them in their language. Uh, they understood the uh, apocalyptic language of the day. They were called blessed to hear it, and they were called blessed to keep it. And they were not going to be able to keep it unless they understood what it meant. So it was very clear to them what was, what was going on and what, what the truth that was spoken of in the letter. And this prophecy also was meant to be opened, unlike the book of Daniel where the vision was sealed for it referred to, to many days from now. Revelation 22, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right. And the holy still be holy. So the book was meant to be opened up. It was meant to be understood. And it was meant to be read. The Apostle John wrote the Revelation while he was in exile on the island of Patmos. Just off the coast of what is present-day Turkey. Not far from Ephesus in Asia Minor. Uh, Revelation 1 9 says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the, on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind, behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So let's take a look at the persecution first that the Christians were under. They were under very intense persecution. John himself introduces himself as a partner in the tribulation. We know that the tribulation was, was ongoing at the time. And we know that Christians were first persecuted under the leadership of Nero Caesar, who reigned from about AD 54 to 68. Uh, The Christians most likely enjoyed some safety before that, as they were uh, under the protection of Judaism. A lot of people didn't understand Christianity, where it came from. They believed it to be a sect of Judaism. The uh, the Jews gained some special privileges when they were conquered by the Romans. In 143 BC, they voluntarily allied themselves with Rome, and in and in doing so, Rome gave them some special privileges. To uh, uh, their religion was officially recognized, and they were not required to participate in the emperor, emperor worship when it was instituted a little bit later, after uh, the death of Ju- Julius Caesar. So that was the protection that the Jews uh, enjoyed, and the Christians kind of fell under that protection until in A.D. 49, the Jews were evicted from, from Rome by Claudius, as we read in Acts 18.2. And so that protection left them, and, and per- persecution um, gained, gained in strength. So in the city of Pergamum, which was considered the capital of the Roman province of Asia, they had built three temples to the Roman emperors, along with many, many other temples. Pergamum was considered the earthly throne of Satan. In addressing the church at Pergamum, Paul writes in Revelation 2, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas." my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So Antipas, who lived in Pergamum, was one of the, the first martyrs that we know of. Obviously, we know of Stephen, but he was uh, martyred for the, his, the faith. He was, he was killed, and they were seeing this happen on a regular basis. In fact, when I was writing this, I was thinking about those that are suffering today around the world, we're kind of secluded from that over here. And we sometimes forget that Christians are being persecuted, even in this day. I read that up to 500 Christians a, a day are being, are being killed uh, for their faith. So we need to uh, pray for them, pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. And um, we don't know how long uh, we're going to be excluded from that. Uh, There might come a day when we might might have to endure that as well. So uh, later in chapter 2 of Revelation, there were some uh, Christians who needed to be reprimanded also of of sins that were among them. There was a lot of pressure that they were under not to pay homage to the gods uh, of the world, including the emperors themselves. It was believed by the Romans that the gods were the ones to be credited with their social and economic uh, blessings. Refusal to show gratefulness to the emperor gods was considered bad citizenship. And it wasn't as as if you could hide in that day and age. You were either in or you were out. Uh, They knew if you were a Christian or if you were not, you could not remain neutral like we can in this day and age. Uh, it was impossible to be indifferent or to remain anonymous. And the Romans had a way of convincing the upper class to buy into their system. Partly out of greed and partly out of self-preservation, it was an affluent society, and to take part brought up very comfortable living. So it was a hard thing to not to buy into that, to, uh, to stand with Christ. You were, uh, you were definitely marked. So to put things in a better perspective as we focus on the first century, I want to take a look at some of the things they were facing. Paul wrote many times concerning the last days and what believers were to experience. In 1 Peter 4, he writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which is, comes on you for testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may result, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. It's easy, I think, to say that, uh, when you, but when you're in the midst of that, that's a heavy thing. But I was looking, as we look back on when the church grew the strongest, when was that? Under times of persecution, right? That's when the church seems to grow, grow strongest and, and deepest. I was at a conference on, on Tuesday, and John McCarthy was one of the speakers, and he was asked, when is that day coming here? When will the day come that we will no longer be able to publicly proclaim his name or, or stand up um, without some condemnation? And John MacArthur's answer was, not soon enough. And I, I thought that was, that was really interesting. But essentially what he, what he went on to say was, when that day comes, you will see a, a great separation of truly who's in and who's out no longer will you be able to stand on the fence. It'll be, it'll require some sacrifice to stand for Christ. So, you know, and that's a good way to look at it. I think we need to look at it the same way. So the churches that were written to in the book of Revelation were real churches. They were located close to one another in the area of Asia Minor. And these churches represented the common struggles that churches of that day were facing. And not unlike the struggles that we face today. I'm going to summarize some of those struggles in, in the next uh, few minutes here so we can take a look at what they were facing. One of the things was was false teaching, and um, that was, I think, the thing that Paul dealt with most of the time when he, in his writings was false teaching. There were many that were rising up in that day and age to claim that they were the Christ, that they had heard from God, um, and this has really been the case throughout time. And we see a lot of that today. Second Peter 2 says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon them swift, swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So the church has always battled false teaching and will continue to battle false teaching. I think we have to be uh, aware and and know our word and, and be able to refute those that are speaking falsehoods. And there's always been those that are willing to, to gain uh, from their teaching. We see a lot of that in Africa today, where the church is being exploited uh, through preaching. Uh, pastors will say, come, we'll heal you. And, uh, and along the way, please, please give us some money. The more money you give me, the more I'll pray with you, pray for you, basically. And it's, it's rampant over there. We might hear a little bit from, from Ray next week about that. They, they needed to protect themselves from the, uh, uh, the current battle that we have is also against the inerrancy of Scripture. There are many today who do not take the Word of God as being authoritative or inerrant. They believe you can, you can pick and choose what you want to believe. And uh, that's, that's the current battle that we're under. Matthew 24 says, They will deliver you up. And then the end will come. So some of them had lost their first love. And if you're with us for some of our earlier studies, it was not a love for Christ as taught most days. It was was a love for the unlost, a love for the unbeliever. They'd become lukewarm. Um, Again, John was teaching that uh, lukewarm was meant that you were unuseful. You weren't hot water, which was good for bathing, or you weren't cold water, which was good for drinking, but you were lukewarm. You were un, unuseful. And the church at Ephesus was warned for their lack of love and encouraged to do the works that they did in the beginning, to have the zeal that they did in the beginning of their walk. There were some who were also stumbled by the idols around them and had given themselves up to sexual immorality. Acts 15, 28, for to seem good to the holy spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality if you keep yourself from these you will do well so the the tendency to be stained by the things of the world uh, was was rampant as it is today Some could not resist its temptation. Uh, They loved the world more than they loved Christ. And it says in John 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the churches were being encouraged not to compromise in their faith, not to fall sway to its temptations, uh, the temptations of the world. And if you were to to define the church in this day and age, what would a a good definition be? I I think it would be to to bring glory to God, right? Right? I mean, that's, that's the church's mission, is to bring him glory. Uh, at the conference, the definition that um, one of the teachers came up was was to to bring God glory as we manifest his character to the world. So that is the role of the church. We are to be the glory of God. If you're, I know many of you are going through the, a study of 1 Corinthians right now, and I'm going to take a couple of thoughts from that book. And... Um, this was uh, another study that we went through uh, during the week. Chapter one, the church is waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, called to be holy and blameless. Chapter two, the church is also strange to the world, and the world should, should look at us oddly or different. We really shouldn't fit in as the people of God. Chapter three, we are strange to the world, but we're special to God. We are God's holy temple. Chapter 5, we should be intolerant of sin. Chapter 7, we are slaves of Christ. Chapter 10, we're to flee idolatry and sexual immorality. And as it was true for the church in the first century, it's also true for the church today. To sum it up, we're to, we're to bring God glory. And to do that, uh, we do that by the blood of Christ. We can't do that in an own, in an, of our own strength. It would be impossible. But what's, what's, uh, what's great in the book of Revelation here, as he sums it up, as he sums up the letters to the churches, he talks about how they are to conquer. They're, they are told that he who conquers will be granted to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise, paradise of God. These are great, sins, uh, great promises for us. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers will be given a new name by which we will forever be identified with Christ. The one who conquers and who keeps my works till the end will reign with Christ over the nations. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and his name will not be blotted out from the book of life. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. So great promises that we have as we conquer. So the first point is, we will conquer because Christ has conquered. We will endure because Christ has endured. We will reign because Christ reigns. He reigns now, and he reigns forever. Revelation 4, 8 Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Second point of revelation. Redemptive history took a huge turn when Christ came, suffered buried, rose, and, um, and, and I think in, in that time, as we read through the New Testament, we see that even the apostles themselves were a little confused by, by the Lord's teaching. They didn't understand the big picture. The old covenant was passing away. It was made obsolete. Uh, a, a better covenant, a new covenant was taking its place. The Jews themselves had become expert in getting around the law. They knew the law. They they knew how to um, adhere to the law. But when Jesus came, he often would say, you've heard it said, but I tell you. You think it means this, but I want to tell you what God means by what it says We can't get around the law nowadays because it's written on our hearts. You know, it's written on our conscience. The Holy Spirit convicts us. We know what's right and what's wrong. I think it would be much easier if we just had to follow a few rules and if those rules were written down. But uh, we can't get around it as believers. Hebrews 8 sums it up real well. Starting in verse 7. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is already vanishing away. This was a big thing for them. All that they knew at the time was the law, was the covenant that God had made with them. And for them to understand anything different took some time, took some teaching, took the Holy Spirit... Actually, eventually coming at Pentecost to reveal these things to them. No longer will sacrifices have to be made by priests on a regular basis for the sins of men. No longer will priests enter into the Holy of Holies and make atonement according to the Old Covenant. No longer will the blood of bulls and goats be sufficient to cover the sins of men. No longer will God be satisfied with the sacrifices and offerings that were required under the Old Covenant. And this was a big step. This took some explaining. Again, in Hebrews. Hebrews is a great book if you're ever studying the uh, Old and New Covenant. Hebrews 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities... It can never be the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year. Make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that, will we all have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So that is a blessing. We um, no longer have to endure or offer up uh, daily sacrifices. God has offered up the ultimate sacrifice in his son, Jesus Christ. Another thing uh, that was happening was no longer will circumcision of the flesh be enough to be considered in the family of God. That was a, that was a big thing. That was the, uh, the physical act that, that they took place in to separate themselves from the world. The circumcision that we have now is, is, is of the heart. Let's read Romans. Romans 2, 28. For no one is a Jew... Who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. So we are circumcised in our heart in this day as believers. No longer will you have to worship God in a temple made with the hands of men. The Bible says, now we worship God in spirit and in truth. John 4, starting in verse 20. This was another thing that they were confused about. They didn't know where they were to worship uh, God. Um, The Jews worshiped him in Jerusalem, and uh, they thought that that was the only place that you could worship and be a true follower our fathers worshiped on this mountain but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for if the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. The other major event that happened was the destruction of the the temple in 70 AD. It was the center of Jewish worship. uh, And to understand the significance of this, we need to understand the significance of the temple. Jerusalem uh, temple at the time represented the cultural center of Judaism. It also represented the place where they met God. It was uh, a most, Jerusalem was a most famous city at the time in the civilized world. And the temple was the glory of that city. The historian Josephus writes that when the temple was destroyed, Jerusalem lost its glory. I'm going to quote him. And where is not that great city, the metropolis of the Jewish nation, which was fortified by so many walls round about, which had so many fortresses and large towers to defend it, which could hardly contain the instruments prepared for war, and which had so many ten thousands of men to fight for it? Where is this city that was believed to have God Himself inhabiting therein? It is now demolished to the very foundations. End quote. So that was a cataclysmic event that happened in 70 AD. And Jesus spoke of that destruction, uh, coming destruction many times in the Bible. I'm going to go over a couple of those. Matthew 24 um, uh, before I go there. So we know that the temple of uh, Judaism was gone. This marked the end of an age, uh, the end of the Jewish age. Jesus enters the temple for the the last time in uh, Matthew 21, 12, where he turns over the tables. I think many of us are familiar with that story. And he leaves it just as dramatically in chapter 24, starting in verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, You see all these? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will, not be one, uh, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? and then the end will come. So this was a hard saying for them to hear. They didn't understand what that meant. Um, But you can envision Jesus looking back at the temple, telling them that this temple that you see before you would be thrown down, and them not completely understanding it or believe it. In fact, it came up a couple times later in in Jesus' ministry in in Matthew uh, 27, as he was, uh, it was used to taunt him, and they said, Matthew 27 40, and saying, You would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So they remembered this saying. This was a big saying, this was not something that um, was, was taken lightly. Everybody understood that Jesus had made this, this claim. Again, in Acts, when the Jews uh, accused Stephen of saying, saying similar things, when uh, Stephen was, uh, just before he, he gave his sermon, and, just be, and then obviously they ended up stoning him afterwards, in Acts 6.13 it says, And they set up false witnesses and said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So this was a very important saying that was being circulated around, that this temple would be destroyed. And uh, he also said that it would be destroyed within a generation. And we know a generation to be 40 years. So why why did the temple need to be destroyed? And why was it necessary that God put an end to old covenant worship as they knew it? Why did their traditional customs need to change? He wanted to make it very clear that the old had been done away with, that there was a new covenant. The law was now written on, on your heart and not tablets of stone. That we will worship him in spirit and truth, not in a temple made with man, man's hands. And that the sacrifice that he was going to make was going to be once and for all. In the Revelation, Jesus becomes the, uh, the temple himself. In uh, Revelation 21, uh, Jesus says, And I saw no temple in the city. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So that is our promise. Jesus claims to, to become that temple, and we worship him in spirit and truth. And the other thing that is important to, to see, that the earth as we know it will be destroyed, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is the day that we we all look forward to. So he finishes the book in, in Revelation 22, just as he started it, by saying, Revelation 22, 6, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord God, the God of the spirits, of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So <clears throat> a day is coming. A day has come. It's the already and the not yet. Uh, that They were under tribulation. There, there, there has been tribulation. There will be tribulation. And we shouldn't be um, unaware when it comes upon us. He calls us to persevere. And we can persevere because we've been given this example. We do this by His grace. Looking forward to the day there, where there will be no more sin, no more trials, no more pain, no more crying. Um, when we get to see Him face and face. And our praise will build the temple and that temple is Christ himself for we will have entered glory amen